a series called Innovation, where the first week in the series we talked about uh, a theology of creativity. What does, it, what does it mean to reflect or be in this dynamic relationship with a creative God, with, with a God who creates, and that somehow as we create, we're able to enter, enter into and come to know and understand and reflect the glory of God in us in that whole creative kind of process. So we talked about creativity and innovation and what that kind of looks like. Last week, Luke uh, brought a message talking about leadership and how biblical leadership and responsibility looks a lot like service. Um, it's been said that love is, uh, or service is love in working clothes. And I think the challenge for all of us in terms of leadership is that if we're going to lead, the thing we should be leading in most is love reflected in service. And so uh, it's, a, it's a real challenging idea with regard to culture today that if we're going to step out of the pockets of ind individualism um, to be able to influence others, to be able to be innovative, to be able to be thought leaders, that somehow we have to have love wrapped up in that. It's, it's like, um, like egg cartons, right? You know what I'm talking about? Egg cartons. I'm not going to draw it. Um, egg cartons, it's got all the little divots. We dig ourselves these own little individualistic holes where everything bends to us. I mean, the, the center of gravity is depressed, so it's like holding down uh, a, a uh, trampoline with a bowling ball in the middle. Everything kind of rolls to the middle, right? Individualism is in some sense lowering that center of gravity, so everything bends to you. So when we've got a, a culture or society that's reflective of an uh, individualism as a kind of a norm or a character trait, it's, a, it's an even greater challenge to somehow rise up out of all those little holes or divots that we've created to actually be able to engage other people in meaningful ways um, because we all tend to see everything as bending toward ourselves. We're, we're our own little black holes. Um, but the, uh, the Bible would point us to service and love that way. This morning, what I want to talk about is what does it look like to think of church or look at church and what God designed it to be, called it to be, with regard to where we're at in culture. So what does it look like to innovate or to contextualize the body of Christ within culture? So turn to 1 Corinthians with me to chapter 9, and we're going to uh, jump right in. Does somebody have an iPhone I can borrow or a watch? Anybody trust me? Can you bring me that? There's no, I don't have a clock. And I don't have my iPhone. All right, here we go. Thank you. All right. So first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 9. Beginning in verse 19, now Paul, what he's been saying to the Corinthian church is that he's really made a lot of sacrifices to do what he does, to be a witness for Christ, to bring the gospel message to them, that in some sense he's endured a lot, suffered a lot, given up on a lot, and um, he's, he's putting that before them as this kind of model or example of what it is or how, uh, the purity of that sacrifice that he's been making and then when he gets down to verse 19 here, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says this. Though I am free and belong to no man, 
I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I, I myself am not under the law. So as to win those who are under the law, and to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under, under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. So what's really going on here? Paul is expounding on this idea that he is working really hard to take the light of the gospel into culture in a way that that light, um, like a seed or something else, would be able to penetrate culture and make a difference, have an impact, and win people into the cause of Christ that they may join in the church community. There's uh, an interesting thing about this that if you don't know that that, that that has always been one of the defining aspects of the church is trying to work out what it would really look like for Christians or for the church to exist in the world but not of the world, okay? You might have heard that phrase, you might have thought that's a principle, but how does that really look? What form does it really take for Christians and for the church of Christ to be in the world, not of the world? And there are five different ways historically that this is cashed out. One of the, um, the better theologians of the 20th century, they were brothers actually, Reinhold Niebuhr, which you're familiar with, um, you're getting a text. Uh, <laughs> Reinhold, Reinhold, Reinhold Niebuhr is uh, the, the theologian who wrote the serenity prayer. He was at a funeral and he wrote the words, God, give me the courage to change the things I can, uh, the serenity to, to accept the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's, uh, it went on from there, but that first part of the prayer was taken by Alcoholics Anonymous. And so millions of people pray that every day. Well, his brother, Richard Niebuhr, also an accomplished his, uh, church historian and the, uh, theologian, wrote a book called Christ and Culture. And it's kind of the hallmark treatise on really parsing out how has the church historically, over 2,000 years, framed itself up with regard to this specific question. How do the people of God, either individually or gathered, um, exist in society? So there are five different ways. I want to give them to you. Five different ways that we've historically done this. The first one is Christ against culture. Christ against culture. Some of you are very familiar with this. This was the fundamentalist response to culture. Culture is corrupt. It's an evil thing. We're called out of it to stand against it. And so the first one here is Christ against culture. The second one is the Christ of culture. It's accommodationist position. If the first one is an againstness, uh, Christ of culture is a withness. This is really the Catholic Church, especially in the Renaissance age um, of, of uh... so if you've seen Renaissance art and you're like, wow, that looks like humanistic art, but that's the Madonna and child. 
placed in this setting and, and it's like, what's really going on here? Well, it's a harmonization of the two and it's saying that there's really no distinction. The church dominates culture and just pulls it right into itself and these two things are gonna, are gonna exist side by side a bit unquestioningly. I think everyone that's gone to the Vatican museums and walks through, uh, walks through the Vatican museums and, and sees more nudity than they've seen uh, anywhere else with regard to art begins to go, I, I, this isn't the Baptist church I grew up in. I don't understand, right? And, and even in the Catholic church, there's this tension that happens from generation to generation. And so if you walk through the Vatican museums, you'll see that a lot of little nude statues have leaves in private places. Because a pope a hundred years ago went through with a, ch uh, a hammer in the middle of the night and chiseled off through the Vatican. And, and obviously uh, Pope Pius, the whatever. And obviously he had a, a different view of, of what should be going on. And so you see how that tension works itself out back and forth even within uh, a large thing like the Catholic Church or within denominations. So Christ against culture, the first one. The Christ of culture, the second one. The third one is Christ above culture. Christ above culture. And what this really posits is that these are in separate magisteriums. These are so far different. There's a dualism, if you will, between these two. So you have the sacred and the secular, but there really is no intersection. You might have uh, priests or people that can, can find their way into those mystic realms, but the rest of us below are in this secular or common, which is what the word secular means, this kind of common realm. And we go on just living in culture. But Christ is somehow above culture. So there's this dualism in this view. So the third one, Christ above culture. The fourth one, where Luther was, uh, where Reinhold Niebuhr was, the brother of Richard Niebuhr, is Christ in culture and paradox. Christ and culture and paradox, meaning sin is such a deep part of life and it infects both the holy or the believers or the would-be saints as well as culture that you really can't draw a distinction where the one begins and the other leaves off that we are infected with sin when we're outside culture, that culture itself struggles and labors under broken systems, that it's all a dialectic and a tension, and the dominant event in world history is when Jesus died so that grace would reset this, and so even though we are sinners, we have the opportunity to reach out and save or help other sinners. Again, very much a Lutheran thing, and, and Luther reacted against the Christ against culture model, which was the convent and the uh, monastic system that he had grown up in himself. And he was a monk and he came out of that, left that, and then called uh, women out of convents and said, we can marry. We don't have to be celibate uh, priests and nuns. This, this Christ against culture thing is not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible calls us to be living this out in culture, but to be aware of our own depravity and to wrestle that out for ourselves as well as we call other people into that dialectic or that paradox, which, by the way, would be a great title for a book, Paradox. 
actually. Anyways, I'm working on that. Um, and so this is the fourth view, Christ and culture in paradox. The fifth view is this. It's Christ transforming culture. Christ transforming culture. Theory of the good that is not separate from but existent within culture that is, uh, has a corrupted order that is restored through Christ in the church of Christ. Augustine, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Karl Barth, Leo Tolstoy, Kierkegaard all had elements that subscribed to this view. And this view is basically the view that we get from uh, scriptural passages like being a light on a hill or being salt that somehow the people who follow Christ or the community that Christ gathers to himself are committed to this enough they're outside of culture enough they're counterculture enough uh, this is the reformationist um, viewpoint they're reformers enough and they're always reforming uh, the, the reformers had a phrase semper reformata always reforming that they're standing outside of culture always reforming to some degree to the uh, to the the ultimate end that they're able to affect and transform the culture around them or the culture into which they're placed okay so this is the fifth view Christ transforming culture so what do we really make of that I think when we read first Corinthians here that what we're seeing is that Paul certainly had a view that was more in the latter two, the fourth and fifth of these five categories or ways of framing yourself up with regard to culture. That Paul was the least uh, or the worst of all sinners and the least of the saints in some sense and therefore was willing to be a bondservant or a slave to Christ, um, not saying that he was any different than the people he was ministering to, but that he had the opportunity because of grace to go out and win some. Okay, do you see that working itself out? The other part is I believe that Paul as a church planter, which is what Paul was, we, we always talk about Paul as the first missionary, but if you really see what Paul was doing, certainly he was a missionary, but everywhere he went, he was planting churches. Because the number one form of evangelism in the world that exists statistically is church planting. If you plant or start or, or help put a church community down and the energy around that and what it does, it's statistically the greatest form of evangelism. The second greatest uh, statistical kind of, if you, if you put it on a continuum here, um, successful way of seeing evangelism happen is if an existing church plants another church. Why do you think that is? If an existing church like Antioch or, or First Baptist or, or other churches in town, if an existing church that has been together for a long time found their own way of doing things, is kind of in their routine, their rhythm, their rut possibly, and they go to plant another church, the backfill of what happens is you send out leaders and workers in your church and just even the gut check with regard to, is this about me? Do I come to church as a consumer um, to consume religious goods that ultimately I'm evaluating everything that happens as to how I feel about it or whether I like it or whether I'm entertained by it or is it really about me with my brothers and sisters serving a higher good 
a common good where we are giving away the best of what we've got and somehow through that um, making church about God, not about us. Does that make sense? And so when you do that or you go through that exercise, the, the purification that happens in an existing church when you plant other churches leads to all sorts of health such that people come to find the Lord. So statistically, the first way, plant a church, people come to the Lord. Uh, the second way, a church planting a church. But what I think we see is Paul the missionary is going around and planting churches. He is doing it in a very specific way by becoming all things to all people. If we go back to 1 Corinthians, look a little bit above this. And we see in verse 19 through 21 that I've made myself a slave to everyone. Verse 20, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To the Greeks, uh, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. So as to win those not having the law. Elsewhere, Paul will say, I became a Jew to the Jews, a Greek to the Greeks, and a Roman to the Romans. Essentially, I was willing to tailor my language and my style and the way in which I was engaging a community according to that community, their style, their language. I saw myself as the more mature one being willing to bend down and to sacrifice my wants or wishes or priorities or even my natural way of speaking so that I could contextualize alongside a community so as to win or transform that community. And so what we see, I think, also with Paul is this fifth view of Christ transforming community that he comes and adapts himself to become relevant to where they're at which is a fascinating word, relevant. So when we look at Christ and culture, I think what we find is that there's a need to always reform ourselves and always look at how we can reform culture. If I were to draw this out, it would look like this. Change is always... Uh, is always happening. Culture evolves and it evolves quickly. I mean, you go into a store and you look at the clothes that are being sold and you're like, man, I just bought clothes, felt like a year or two ago, and now everything looks different. It's like neon. Or um, I was in a store in Portland and, and they're now putting tennis shoe bottoms on the bottom of uh, nice leather shoes which is probably made somebody a lot of money to, to, to be that creative as to say, what if we take the bottoms of tennis shoes and the tops of nice shoes and we just, we just put them together? You know? And, I, and it was funny. I was looking at this and I was like, wow. Wow. That's really cool. Like, I should get a pair of these, you know? Like, who would have thought? But someone's going to make a lot of money. But it's all, culture is always shifting and changing. Language, values, ways of doing things, it's always shifting and changing. What does that do to a church? What's one thing we all know about churches? What's one thing we know to be true about churches? We like the way it was. Another way of saying that is we don't 
adapt or change very well. So church culture typically is flat. It changes, if at all, incredibly slowly. Culture changes incredibly rapidly, especially in today's age with globalization and social media. You're constantly coming into contact with things that are outside of your own kind of circle or community or culture, which creates a process whereby change happens much more rapidly. Does that make sense? So culture is changing. Church typically stays the same and doesn't change. And so that sets up a real tension with regard to language. The language that church speaks to the community that it exists within. The language that church speaks, the community exists within. Every community has a language, and it's different than other communities. When I moved to Bend, when Tam and I came here in 2004, we came from um, Whittier, uh, Whittier, California, Southern California. In, in Whittier, it didn't matter whether you went to a fancy restaurant or to In-N-Out. If you invited somebody to go with you, you would pay. Like, oh, hey, I got this one. And you kind of knew that somehow it all worked out, right? <laughs> that you'd pay this time and somebody else would pay the next time. And in the end, it's all about the same amount of money, right? And if you don't have the money, you just don't invite somebody to go out to eat. You just go eat by yourself. Um, but if you invite somebody out, you kind of you offer to pay. And so when we moved here, we, were, uh, we came up and we were working at First Baptist Church downtown incredibly poor. We had two, uh, our oldest two, Mary Joy and Esther at that time. We were really, like for us at that point in time, we counted everything in like the, the pennies. I mean, literally, like the, the 99 cents, we would look at it and go, oh, you're trying to fool me. You say 10.99, but you really mean $11. You know what I mean? Like I actually would have that conversation back then. Now I just go, that's $11 and I, I don't care. Um, I'm a penny richer than I was. Um, but back then it was really tough. And when we got here, a couple that didn't have kids invited us to go out to dinner. They're like, hey, we want to take you out to dinner to this place that's our favorite place. They're using all the code language. You know what I'm talking about? We are going to take you to our favorite place. We'll come pick you up. Um, you get a babysitter so that we can take you out. So we did. We got a babysitter. We went out to to dinner, there, it was a really fancy, expensive French restaurant that existed right where Ben Burger Company exists now. I, it's hard to picture if you didn't see it back then. And I forget, it was like Le Vien Bleu, or I don't know, French words, right? Um, really expensive. So we get there, and then, and then all of it still is happening the way it would have happened in California, right? They're like, oh, we gotta get we gotta get appetizers, and we're like, okay. Well, hey, let's get like three because we want you we want you to try these different appetizers. Okay, um, and so we go and and the dinner is going long because we're doing multiple meals here and it's a French restaurant, and we're counting in our minds we're counting the babysitter cost. This other couple, like, they don't have kids. They're not counting the babysitter costs. We're counting the babysitter costs, and we're thinking we're up, we're up to $30, $40 now on the babysitter. And we're already, we're already stressing about that, right? And so the check comes, and it just sits there for a while. And at first, I kind of don't think anything about it. 
And then I'm like, it's really been sitting there a long time. It's almost awkward. Do I just keep making small talk and, and continue this thing out? Um, because surely, like, he's, he's going to grab this, this check at some point. And he, and he doesn't. And it begins to get incredibly, incredibly, incredibly awkward. Um, and then eventually, uh, I, I kind of take a look at it. And, um, and I think, and I'm beginning to think he thinks I'm going to pay for this. And I'm like, I can't let that happen. So I'm kind of like, um, do you just want to split it? And then the guy takes and looks at it, and he starts trying to figure out what we had versus what they had. And I'm, and, then he spl- and, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so anyways, it finally gets carved up, and we come back to, we were in this little, um, they had a little parsonage at the time at First Baptist Church. And we come back and uh, say goodbye to them, and we walk in, and we then pay the babysitter. And it wiped out our whole budget for the month. And we're like, what just happened? To us like we what did we miss and it took us about two months but what we what we learned is people and Ben don't pay for each other's meals right like you you, you know you, you carry your own way you know and it's like hey let's go eat but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm gonna pay for you like if I'm gonna pay for you I'll say it um, let me take you out I'm, I'm I'll pay you know you say it up front but there's a difference between Bend in Southern California with how you pay for people's meals. Tam and I, I uh, were just down in New Orleans. I, I was on a trip and we had some frequent flyer miles she came with. And some of you know my, my, stom- I have, my stomach is jacked up. I have a jacked up stomach. And so we're walking around in New Orleans and um, I, I can't eat just normal stuff. Like I, have to, I have to be really high maintenance. I'm that guy at the restaurant that's, you know... Um, can you can you cook my rice and in in Avion water, please? You know I don't know. I mean, it's like, uh, can you use bottled water to cook my rice? But so we go in a restaurant, and so Tamara's trying to help me out. It's a nice restaurant. There's a, a 26 year old girl behind the counter, and she says, uh, Tamara says to her, Hey, um, can you guys kind of customize things here? Like, you know, my husband he's got issues. Um, you know, do you can you can you do some fresh t- like kind of food and this 26 year old girl looks at her like absolutely baffled and she says well everything here is fresh we t- every single one of our meals we do we take right out of the freezer and, and steam it fresh right right before we serve it to you and and we just it was just like this girl's never been to the northwest like <laughs> she's never heard the word gluten or, or or you know what I mean like she just doesn't get it so it was like when I, uh, when I was at, in, uh, I went to Clemson in South Carolina for college, and this is in the 90s. So 91, when I went away to college, I get down there. I was not a vegetable freak growing up, but when I got down there about two months in, I just felt just nasty. Like everything was butter and lard all the time in the cafeteria, and it was all low grade. It was like freshman dorms, you know. It's, so after about two months, I just felt horrible, and, and some friends and I walked on a Sunday down to a restaurant in town. We didn't have cars. Walked to this restaurant called Acropolis. I can still picture it like it was yesterday. And we walk in and we open up and on the appetizer menu it says fresh vegetables. And it was just like, like oh my gosh, is it true? Like, <laughs> I mean, because I couldn't even get to the grocery store, you know what I mean? And, and I didn't have a fridge. And I'm like, 
you know, is it really true? Could it be? So I order these, order these fresh vegetables. And then they, they come out about 10 minutes later. Um, anyone from the South? Do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah. They've been battered and fried. And I'm just like, like really? Like, this is fresh vegetables. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, right? Every culture has its own language. And it's an important thing when you're a church planter or when you're looking to start a church. It's an incredibly important thing that you exit, this is the phrase, you exegete your culture. Now, exegesis is a fancy word that simply means interpreting something where you start from there and work backwards rather than projecting onto. So pastors, when they're looking at scripture, or all Christians, when we're looking at scripture, we're supposed to start here. What what does the text really mean? And then let's back out and try to understand that rather than just projecting onto it what I want it to mean. Does that make sense? So the phrase for church planters is that you have to exegete your culture, meaning what really is the language, what's the, what's the, the dominant cultural vibe, what is really going on here, what does the gospel actually speak to, and then let me back it out. It's kind of what Jesus does with the woman at the well, or I mean you see it, you see it show up in so many different ways and so many different places. It's what Paul's talking about with, I started with the language they had and then backed my way out. When I was in Athens, I talked about philosophy and the poetry of the day, and it's incredibly important to know the audience that you're speaking to. There's a church planter that came to Bend many years ago, and two weeks after getting here, put door knockers on every door. And this person had come from a, a big city uh, way out in the Midwest and hadn't been here long enough to understand that everybody in Bend has either come from a big city, uh, moved here from, from somewhere else, or is independently employed or very entrepreneurial. We have a very high sense of our, our capacities and our capabilities. We're not a, a, a very small-town-minded community, even though there's a lot of small-town vibe going on. And this particular thing with the door knockers ended up offending so many people I knew, even Christians, because it, it projected onto Bend this needy, small-town kind of image that we're finally here to rescue you, was the way it came across. And this church planter just hadn't been here long enough to know the audience, that his audience didn't see themselves as uneducated, unable to understand for themselves that they had already heard in some sense the gospel before or scripture from somewhere else, that, that, that they weren't really going to respond well to being talked down to. Does that make sense? And so cultural ex- exegesis and what does that really look like to contextualize I want to camp here for just a minute because I think where we're at with Antioch, we need to do some hard work with regard to where we need to recontextualize ourselves. Um, ah, let's just break from it. Um, all right. When we started Antioch, I used to... All right. We'll just draw on top of that. Did my, my horizontal line never came through, huh? When I was talking about change, that never came through either. Um, is it going to work or should I? No? All right. 
Um, so charades time. All right. So when we, uh, when we started Antioch, we used to talk about it kind of this tension. So what I had drawn was culture has this, this curve, this, this upward growth curve. And then you've got this flat, static change element of the church culture that we don't really change. And so after a while, church and culture end up very opposed. And then what happens is something really interesting. Whether we believe it theologically or not, we end up framing ourselves as that first category, church or Christ against culture. Why? Because it's threatening to us. It's so different and we don't understand it and we don't speak the language when church culture just stays static and the culture around us changes that we feel threatened and we just don't feel empowered to deal with it that it becomes the enemy. And so somehow if we're going to try and transform culture, we have to stay alongside of it with the same growth curve so that we can speak into it. We have to innovate to the degree that we're thought leaders that we understand both the culture and what Christ or Scripture would say to the culture so that we can always try and contextualize for the non-believer or the new believer or the young believer or even the older believer what, really, um, what life really looks like as a disciple living in um, this particular place at this particular moment as we walk forward. Does that make sense? So we have this kind of need to stay up alongside the growth curve of culture. Well, how do we really do that if we normally stay static? We have to break out two things in order to do that. We have to break out the idea of truth or theology or doctrine on the one hand, which is universal um, and, and is fixed. Doctrine doesn't change. Like I don't get, I don't get to in the year 2013, make up a doctrine, uh, a doctrine or go take a, a doctrine of Christianity and change it. What I mean by doctrines is uh, what we believe to be true about Jesus or scripture, what scripture says about certain things or relationships. I don't get to all of a sudden change it because I want to uh, make it more a certain way that I would like it or not like it or, or whatever else might be the case. That truth, orthodoxy, doctrine, theology, it's fixed. It's rather boring. It never changes. So when people ask us about, um, are you guys safe at Antioch? Like, are you, do you have sound doctrine? What I'll usually say is, we're so orthodox, we're boring. To me, that's a compliment when we're talking about truth. Okay? So truth on the one hand, which never changes. Relevancy on the other hand, which should always change. What it looks like to be authentic what it looks like to communicate in the native tongue of the community you're in, what it looks like to be relevant, what it looks like to incarnate yourself into that community the way Jesus took on flesh and walked around looking like a Jew of his day, talking in Aramaic, the language of his day, talking about concepts that people were familiar with that day, preaching in a way that he would bring in uh, parables of soil or seeds or harvest, which was very familiar to his audience. All of this contextualization being relevant to the people that he was around is something that keeps you moving alongside your community or able to speak into or lead your community. So these two things, they're two different poles. And all throughout church history, you see that we usually will bend to one extreme or the other. So it's like... Uh, anybody ever pay, uh, play 
miniature golf, putt-putt golf. Okay, my daughters don't know what it means. Last time we were in California, we were like, we were thinking about maybe taking them. And I kind of threw it out there, like, Daddy's got a surprise for you. Um, we're going to take you putt-putt golf. And they're like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, we're going to take you miniature golfing. And they're like, what does that mean? And then we kind of let it die down. And I looked at Tamara. I'm like, well, if they don't know what it means, let's just save the money, not go. <laughs> <laughs> so my kids still, uh, they still don't know what putt-putt golf means. When I was six years old to 10 years old, though, I grew up in a little town called Milpitas outside of San Jose. Then I moved to Maine and then down to Virginia and all over the place. But six to 10, outside of San Jose, and there was this big, nice, California-style miniature golf place. We used to play it all the time. And at the very end, they would have the hardest of, of the little miniature golf holes. You know, I mean, in the middle of, of the 18 holes, it's bounced off this concrete go between these two obstacles, you know. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Uh, then there's the drawbridge one, which is all about timing. Remember the drawbridge? And you're like, you know, you're trying to time it out, time it, uh, time it out, you hit it, and then it starts to go up and your ball just bounces off and, and then you have to start over again, right? Um, drawbridge. But the hardest was the volcano one. It was about this tall. Remember what I'm talking about? And the hole is at the top of the volcano. And so you, you've been up till now, it's like three putt, four putt, six putt, eight putt, two putt. You get to this one and all of a sudden you get scores of like 16 or threw my club and did not finish. Um, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Because what happens? You got to hit it just perfectly down the middle or, or your ball veers off to the left or the right. Somehow it's going to bend to the left or the right. Um, or, which is even more frustrating, is you finally hit it straight, but, but what happens now? Too hard, right? You just, it's like it launches and you hit your sister in the head, you know. With, <laughs> but you can't, it's really hard to balance, balance that hole out. And what really happens, I think, with church as we frame up against culture, is that we usually bend toward truth or we bend toward relevance. That we have a really hard time holding these things in tension or separating them out and saying, with regard to truth, we're gonna be so boring uh, and so orthodox that we're boring. Or with regard to relevancy, we're gonna be so relevant that people look at us and go, wow, you're just like me, but there's something different. You're, you're finally talking in a way that I can understand. Um, nobody's ever talked to me like that before. Wow, like I see your life and I want to hang out with you. I get you. We have all these kinds of um, shared interests. You're, you're likable, but you're not hypocritical. Or you don't look down on me. Or you're patient enough to kind of help me process through what my hang-ups are of religion or seeing God as a father because I never had a father figure or or whatever it might be. So with regard to these things, we either end up with one really truth-bound but not really relevant to culture, maybe sometimes judgmental like the Pharisees. Or we end up so relevant like the Sadducees maybe uh, all the way over here but not really holding on to truth. Uh, you know, hyper-conservative or hyper-liberal might be another way that some people might have experienced this. Um, 
But the idea is we end up all the way over here and we're so relevant, but there's nothing grounding us. At the end of the day, it's like, wow, you're really spiritual, but what in the world does it connect to? That's not like Christianity. That's your cobbled together amalgam made up from a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Oprah and a little bit of, you know, Tom Cruise and a little bit of whatever. But that's what, I don't know what that is. That's something you've just cobbled together. It's not historic Christianity. And so we usually end up with one extreme or the other. And so what Antioch has always tried to do since the beginning is we've tried to say, what does it look like to hold these things in tension? I want to show you a couple slides. I think one of the things we need to hold in tension is to be true to our name, Antioch. There was a, a Jewish church in Jerusalem, a Greek church in Athens, but in Antioch, there was a multi-ethnic church. There was a multi-ethnic church. Um, this is how we frame up. Oh, take that slide down for a second because I, I want to I wanna set it up different because it looks bad. Um, <laughs> I have to do work before. There's two ways to define multi-ethnic when you're talking about churches. Okay? The first, so good news, bad news for Antioch. First, the good news. The first definition of multi-ethnic is that you outpace the diversity of your city. Okay? You reflect at the same level or greater the diversity of your city. That's a good definition, isn't it? If you are an all-white church in a city that's very diverse, there's something wrong. And you're limited. You, you've become so homogenous that you're limited you're not really expressing what the body of Christ, the full body of Christ could look like in that community. So the first definition of multi-ethnic is that you outpace your city, okay? That's the good news. You want to know why? Because uh, Antioch, we outpace Bend. So here it is. So we beat Bend by 0.1% and, oh, 0.2% and like, 0.1% on a couple of individual categories um, and as a whole uh, by like a, a, like a half percent. I mean, we're, we're killing it. <laughs> we left Bend uh, statistics in our rearview mirror. Um, <laughs> I just got to laugh at it. Um, let's take that down for a second. There's 10% diversity in Antioch, ethnically. The other definition of multi-ethnic, this is the bad news part, is that most people will say multi-ethnic, if you want to be a multi-ethnic church, you need to have at least 20% or higher with regard to diversity. That's the minimum line that most people look at and say, if you're going to truly not be one dominant majority culture, but have the benefit of wisdom and understanding and stories and narrative uh, and experience um, and perspective and empathy from, from different viewpoints that way. If you're going to truly be a multi-ethnic church, the minimum line is you've got to be at 20%. Now, I think this conversation used to go like this. If I were to say, because when we started Antioch, for the first three years, we had multi-ethnic in our values that we, right out of the church at Antioch, we said, we aim to be 
a multi-ethnic diverse church. After three years, I took it out because I was a, a coward. Because I looked at the city of Bend and I was like, this is awkward. It doesn't quite resonate. And so I don't, I don't, it's awkward. I don't want to have that question because um, it feels like a weakness. Well, what are you supposed to do with weaknesses? Address them, right? And so I think I was a bit too cowardly. And so I think one of the things we need to do is to bring that back into our language. Now, here's the pushback that could happen. What? Is diversity more important than me? What? Somebody of color? Are they more important than me or my kid that we're gonna put our focus and our attention on that person? And that misses the whole point, okay? That critique comes from a purely limited, narrow, individualistic standpoint because here's the deal. When we all stand before the throne in heaven, we will not all be singing Chris Tomlin, okay? It says we will all, all the tongues and all the ethnos, all the nations and all the people groups, they will all be there. That somehow the fullness, like in a band, doesn't come in one note, but in many notes that complement. Here's the deal. If we don't have sufficient diversity here, we suffer. If you think that I'm trying to say some ethnic person is more important than you, you don't understand you. I'm looking at you and saying you're deficient. You are deficient. You are lacking. You don't have a friend that can challenge your worldview or your perspective. You don't have someone that can balance you out. You don't have someone that can sing with you and make your song better. You're deficient. I want to fix it. Let's fix it together. Let's bring in some other voices. If you think you're complete in your whiteness next to your white friend and next to your other white friend, you don't understand the way God sees the world. And we don't understand our name as a church called Antioch, that we can be a multi-ethnic church. There's enough diversity in this town that if we want the plurality of voices, if we hunger for that, if we focus on that and plan for that, maybe even hire to that, Even use Kilns College or an intern ministry to import diversity so that the town of Bend would look at us and go, thank you for helping make Bend more diverse, right? That we can truly become a 20% or greater multi-ethnic church. I think we got to do that for relevance sake. I think we got to do that because today in this place, it's what speaks the language of culture. I think it's really hard to talk to young people that grow up in public school systems with uh, people of different races and religions all around them and they make friends with all these people and the rest of us that grew up with kind of singular experiences in public schools, they look at us and go, "What what do you mean like focus on diversity? What do you mean trying to learn how to have that conversation? Like, I, they don't get it. They don't get, the young people don't get it. Our culture has changed. And we're we're in a country that is multi-ethnic and becoming more multi-ethnic every day. And we can continue to go flat 
Or we can say, this actually matters. We have to understand and lead and innovate as the church into this conversation if we ever hope to transform culture. Because if we don't, culture's just gonna look at us and say, you guys are backwards. What do you have, one, to even understand us, two, let alone teach or instruct us? Does that make sense? The second thing, um, there's a slide about how people find Antioch. Um, how did you hear about Antioch? 54% of people say a friend. What prompted you to attend Antioch? 38% of the people, you, us, would say a family or friend invited us. How does the church become friendly? How does the church become a community? How does it become relevant? How does it speak into uh, the surrounding kind of culture? Primarily through relationships. We grow and we contextualize as we virally work ourselves out into this community through relationships. You don't have to be the world's greatest theologian. You don't have to be the world's greatest transformational leader with regard to theology and culture. We as a church body with many different gifts collectively function this way as salt and light in our community. So how do, how do we get to play into that? Oftentimes by just bringing people so they can be exposed to your friends or your neighbors or your mom or your dad or your kids or whoever it might be because we are a team that is able to interact corporately with our community in our city. We just need to care enough about the program that we're talking about it and inviting people into that community. Does that make sense? Um, there's another verse, if you go down just a bit in 1 Corinthians to chapter 10, verse 31 through 33. It says this, Paul says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, um, by the way, eating and drinking, whether eating and drinking or not, is kind of a secular, sacred conversation. Like, look, if you think you're so pure that you're not gonna drink, or if you're just not into that and you are drinking, like, I don't care about that. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I'm trying to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. But whatever you're doing, if you're doing it in faith to the glory of God, whether it's a religious thing, church, Christ, or a secular thing, culture, city, bend, town, people, Whatever you're doing in whatever sphere it's at, you do it all the way to impress God. Like, and when I say impress God, I'm not talking about earning merit or favor. I'm talking about God going, yeah. Like, that's what I'm talking about. Somebody's amped up enough. They think souls are on the line enough. They're excited enough. They're creative enough. They think about excellence and quality enough. They're trying hard enough. They're creative and innovative. They're just making it happen. I'm so excited about what's going on. Whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God so that God looks good. When people look at you, see what you're doing, why you're doing it, they're like, wow, 
Christianity's bigger than I thought. It's cooler than I thought. It's more desirable than I thought. I want to go to that church because I've never quite heard of something like that. Really? They're like actually growing the diversity of Bend? Let me go see what's going on. Why would they do that? How are they even doing that? But whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. When we started Antioch, we were obsessed with this. We called it, um, I've come to call it now the Antioch way. But we were obsessed with excellence. And then we got into the, uh, the, the Great Depression. We got into our recession. And Antioch has existed with no ministry budgets. Like kids ministry doesn't really have any extra ministry budget. Our high school budget gets like 200 bucks a year. Junior high, like zero. You know, I don't know. I, I'd have to look at the budget. But it's like we don't have ministry money. And we're understaffed and in all of that. And we can't even get people to do set up and tear down. And so in all of that, what began to happen was we couldn't sustain quality. And when we can't sustain quality and that goes on long enough, you know know what happens? You begin to be okay with that. And you begin to cut corners. And then it begins to look cheaper. And here's the, the sad part. The more cheap the corporate side of Antioch looks, the more the people of Antioch begin to take it as cheap. You see how it shapes it that way? If we're all collectively valuing something, we all value it. If it gets devalued collectively, we devalue it. I believe the stock market's like this. I believe, I'm overstating it, and I'm not an economist. Uh, See? Um, I'm not an economist but I think stocks are like it's just one big game if you could get everybody to think something's really exciting they'll all buy it they won't even know what the profit and loss is they won't know who's on the board of directors they won't even know what happened five years ago they'll just make a run on it and it's a, a form of collective valuation and because everybody's valuing it then everybody wants to value it and then if everybody jumps off that stock, it doesn't matter if they made a lot of money, it doesn't matter if they have the best board of directors, it doesn't matter what the business plan is, all of a sudden everybody else is going to go, oh my gosh, it's going down, it must be cheap. It, it must be bad stock. It's, it's, and so they all leave and bail. Do you see how collective valuation creates value? Does that make sense? I mean, someone else here thinks stocks are like that, like a big game, Right? If we all value church, guess what happens to church? It becomes valuable. If we all begin to devalue church, guess what happens to church, the body of Christ in our midst? We begin to devalue it. So there's a, one last slide. We'll close on this. Um, the Antioch Way slide. We have our four commitments, Christ-centered, authentic spirituality, intentional community, missional. A lot of this is, is missional. Paul was missional, all the stuff we've been talking about today. He framed himself up with culture first as a Christian and as someone who's saying, I'm on a mission. I'm, I've got a missional mindset with my community. It's the first and most important question with regard to where I live and the people I'm ministering to. And we have to embody that. That's the calling we have as witnesses of Christ. And then we have three values, creativity, excellence, and passion. And the intersection of our four commitments and our three values 
is what we call our, our ministry expression. That's what the DNA, what we want to be known about as Antioch. These things we think are theologically important. These ways of us doing them to the glory of God. And that when those intersect, people go, that's Antioch. And it's different. And it's attractive. And I want to bring my friends there. And it's transforming and making a difference, not only in my life, but in the community in which I live. That's Christ and culture. That's the vision of Antioch. That's the opportunity and the calling that we have. That's the invitation to you that we would all be able to come together and create collective value in this community for this thing called the body of Christ that we're a part of. Amen? Father, we commit this to you knowing it's your plan from the beginning. We're not just trying to play games or, or create uh, fun things to be a part of <laughs> because we're bored. We're not trying to innovate in a vacuum um, and in some ways become our own idols. We're trying to innovate because you're the one who gave us the creativity. We're trying to innovate because if we do that, we can reflect your glory better. We're trying to innovate and be creative because somehow our effectiveness in our calling goes up as we do. We're trying to be relevant and to contextualize because people matter to you and if people matter to you, they should matter to us. And if diversity matters to you, then diversity should matter to us. Father, help us be aware of our own deficiencies, that sin doesn't just exist out there in non-Christians, it exists in our hearts too. The line between good and bad isn't between us as, as churchgoers and them as culture. The line between good and evil goes right down the middle of everyone's heart, my heart. God, let us always look back to your grace is what sustains us, compels us, and ultimately drives us forward. Father, lead us by your Holy Spirit that we wouldn't be groping in the darkness but know where to go as we try to lead in this community. Father, we pray all these things desperately crying out for your wisdom, your strength, your mercy, your grace, and your leading. In Jesus' name. Amen.